If God is perfect, his word should be too. It should be clear, concise, and consistent throughout. The Bible is anything but. It has to be right. It has to be clear. It has to be inerrant if you're going to call it inerrant. Right. And you can't just decide that these things are inerrant when they clearly contradict each other. When you tout your holy book as being actually factually written by God, it says so in 2 Timothy 3.16 after all. You do not get to compare it to other literature. You don't get to make excuses for it by basically saying, yeah, it's God's word, but people wrote it. Even if you put it on a timeline, there are things that crash into each other that you still can't just explain away. They try, but they can't. It's that simple. Semantical arguments don't work when you're supposed to bank your life and your eternity on the message of a book. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective. And a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And And it's it's time time to get unbound. The earth will last forever, but heaven and earth shall pass away. No man has seen God except Jacob, who saw him face to face. But God doesn't have a face because he's spirit. But we're made in his image and likeness, and we have faces. We need to honor our parents. Unless we decide to follow Jesus, then we need to hate them. Death is permanent, according to Job, but not that permanent, according to the Gospel of John and a lot of other places in the New Testament. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight, we are looking at the subject of biblical contradictions and the desperate attempts Christians make to cover them up. It is ridiculous how many ways the Bible contradicts it is ridiculous how many ways the Bible contradicts itself, and still there are many who believe that even the worst of contradictions have explanations that forgive, justify, or explain them. We'll get into the meat of that conversation in a few, but first, a modern prophet who can't complete a pass, a pastor who can't help being an ass, and Greg Locke trying to resurrect the Salem witch trials. Sorry, rhymes escaped me with that one. Yeah. It's Christians behaving badly, ultimate what-the-fuck edition. Yeah. Yeah, you pretty much got that right. First up, we've got Super Bowl news. Ooh, time Super to, Bowl news. It's time to update your prophecies for the new year. Oh, brother. Johnny Enlow has updated us on the symbolic meaning of people tackling people at the Super Bowl. You might remember his Super Bowl predictions from previous years. First, he saw unmistakable signs in the College Football National Championship in January of 2021. Enlo said that when the game began, he fully expected the final score to contain the number 45, which he said would be a prophetic sign regarding Trump, who is the 45th president of the United States. Oh, brother. Though there was no 45 in the final score, Enlo nevertheless found prophetic significance in the score when he saw it displayed on ESPN as Ohio State 24 to 52 Alabama. Because there's a 45 in the middle, is that the thing? It is, it is, and that's it. To Enlo, the number 45 surrounded by two twos was a clear sign from God that Trump is going to serve a second term. Twos. Did he? Oh, okay. All right. I get I get the two thing now. Twos. Oh, for crying out loud. And then in early February of 2021, he asserted that a game-sealing interception by the Buccaneers linebacker Devin White near the end of the game prophetically signaled that 
Trump will return to office because white wears the number 45. I don't know how many times I'm going to say, oh, brother, out loud. I'm thinking I'm going to just think it yeah. from this point forward because that's going to be a lot to edit out. Yeah, it so is. It's it's. I'll it's give crazy. a final, oh, brother, here yeah. and just listen to the rest of this as much as I can stand to. Well, this year, Johnny Enlow's Facebook contains the juicy deets of this year's Super Bowl prophecy. But the way he tells it, it sounds like more like some weird parable. And here is his Facebook post on that. Another Super Bowl tidbit. The Cincinnati Bengals ended the game with either 305 or 306 total yards. 75 of those yards came on a throw from Joe that should have never counted. His receiver illegally grabbed the face mask. Who's Joe? It doesn't even matter. It'll all become clear. Okay. His receiver illegally grabbed the face mask of his defender that should have been a penalty against his team and no touchdown. It is called a face mask penalty. Without those 75 yards, the Bengals' yardage total would have been 230 or 231. In an entirely different setting, a different Joe, who had a total of 306 electoral votes, was part of an illegal face-masking that went unchallenged by the referees and allowed for a fraudulent score. What a coincidence! And the game ended with a player named Donald sacking a player named Joe so the fraudulent score didn't matter. Hmm, so interesting, huh? Yeah, most coincidences are. Yeah. I'm really wondering if Johnny Enlow is more limber thanks to all the stretching and reaching he's doing for these meanings. Yeah, I mean, there's a reach, and then there's this. And might I say that I'm looking at this, and I have to readily admit, I have no fucking clue what most of it means. You officially know more about football than I do at this point. (laughs) Barely. The spider is not... A fan. I don't. I'm just going to put that out there. Neither one of us are fans, but basically he's going by the names of the two players that were playing together and one sacked the other. And so neither of us know who this Joe is. We don't Uh, know who Donald is. Some of the listeners are going to know who they are. The listeners are going to know. Yeah. I neither know nor care. Yes. Because I've never had even the slightest interest in football. But, I mean, just the the parallels that they're trying to make here. It's just, just like... It's so ridiculous. Yes. Randomly, this player randomly sacked another player, and their names just so happen to be Donald and Joe. Yeah, you know, I could say something about the number 222, because <laughs> it's an odd thing. It's nothing but coincidence. I don't know why this happens. Yeah. But almost every day, and I'm usually in the car at mm, that time. Yeah. Almost every day, I will look at the clock at 2.22. I don't know what it is. I don't know what the explanation is for it. I look at the time often because we only have an hour with the student. So I need to know how much time is left in, you see, I almost said the episode this time. Last week, I said lesson for episode. (laughs) Now I'm saying episode for lesson. This is is where my worlds collide, okay? But I have to keep track of the time left in the lesson, but... It's just this odd thing that happens. Yeah. I see 2.22 almost every single day on the clock. <laughs> and it kind of startles me every time it happens. I know that there's no significance to it, but it's an odd fucking coincidence. 
Well, you know what? These are kind of odd fucking coincidences, too. Yeah. That really are apropos of nothing. Yes. And that's really what it boils down to. I mean, these numbers occur everywhere. Yeah. You could look up the number 45 in Google and come up with news stories that well, yeah. that have that number in it and say, see, it means this. No, it really doesn't. It just means that it involves the number 45. Why right. do I look at the clock when it's 222? Because my eyes happen to go there at that time. That's most of it. Sometimes it's 222. And I have noticed in the last few years, 444. So it's just an odd thing that happens. But that's all it is. And that's all this was. But when you are a quote unquote modern prophet, well, everything has to have significance. Yeah. Especially when it comes down to something like the number 45. Yeah, it's got to be really tiring for them. So this next one, I mean, uh, I almost I almost want to give another trigger warning on this one, yeah, but I wouldn't really know how to frame it. It's just, th this is so fucking vile. We're talking about toxic family members, really. Yeah, and yeah, And we're talking we about death. So trigger warning for death. Losing someone close to you is always difficult. Recently, a young man named Winchester Hagens, also an evangelistic preacher, was grieving his fiancée, who had been in a terrible car accident. He also made a flower box decorated with pictures of them that held live plants because she liked the idea of having live plants rather than being given flowers. The flower box was very tastefully done, and the city said it would be allowed unless a relative complained. You know, as I was sitting here reading this, I'm, I'm waiting to see what the bad part is was it's like this this actually sounds pretty good i don't see what's wrong here oh listeners just you know yeah. give it a couple it's of coming. seconds it's give it a couple coming. seconds this this is diabolical this is in an article about this um hagen says hannah didn't like cut flowers from a florist she preferred living flowers so that's why he says he made this planter box and left it on her grave even though she is gone i promised her i would never bring cut flowers again she was the love of my life, the person I wanted to spend the rest of my life with, he said. Hagen's built a flower box filled with her favorite flowers and decorated it with pictures of the two of them. He spoke with the city to ask if he was able to place his flower box by her grave. The people of the city told me they don't enforce that unless a family member asked for it to be removed, said Hagen's. And here it comes. Well, one relative, the woman's father... Tom Ford III, a Baptist preacher, surprise, did object, going as far as to swear out a warrant for his arrest. <laughs> Jesus Christ. For what? Littering a gift for his dearly departed fiance. And his daughter. Yeah. I mean, this is just like an animal savaging another animal because they're hurt. The only thing I can think of here is that daddy didn't like her choice for right. a husband. And now this is his way of retaliating. Yeah, but... And it's so fucking petty. Yeah. All you're hurting is this young man who is really just grieving the woman that he thought he was going to spend the rest of his life with. Yeah. How do you do this to someone? Well, it's... I say this a lot on the show. He is a part of a religion that does a stellar job of packaging hate as love and love as hate. So after a little while, it all just kind of meshes in your head. And the level of selfishness that goes into a decision like yeah. this, that goes into actions like this, it doesn't surprise me, no. given the source. It really no. just does not, because these people are incredibly selfish. Yeah. So 
it sounds to me like this guy just didn't like his future son-in-law. Yeah. So now he's going to pull this shit. Yeah. And, it's... you know, it doesn't surprise me that he's a Christian. But I will say this much because I interacted with a lot of people who were in the ministry. It does surprise me that it's coming from a pastor. Because yeah. if there's anyone on the face of the planet that should understand just a little tiny bit about empathy and understand what it is to grieve, that's a pastor, as far as I'm concerned. If you're a pastor and you're called to it, then these are things that you understand and they're not things that you mock. This guy was mocking his future son-in-law's grief. And I think yeah. that that is despicable. Really? I know it's not surprising, but it's still like, how? I just feel like, how can you feel this way towards someone? And you know what? That's a clear sign that you've gotten unbound. Yeah. It's a clear sign that you've learned how to think the right way yeah. about these things. Because I don't want to understand it. No, I, mean, I don't. I, I do because I was part of this for so long. Right. But... I never want to reach a point of understanding of something like this where it seems natural inside my head. Right. I would never, ever, ever want to reach that point. So yeah. one more. Oh, my God. He's back. <laughs> He's back, He's ladies back. and gentlemen. Well, finally, last and least. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we have Pastor Greg Cotton Mather Locke, who seems to be threatening his own flock with a witch hunt. While he was casting demons out of a woman who'd come to him, he'd started a conversation with one of the demons inhabiting the woman. You know, as one does. Oh, sure. The preacher, known for his sensationalist sermons about politics and COVID-19 skepticism, went on to describe the exorcism in detail, quoting a demon with a scruffy voice who accused worshipers at the church of being witches. Don't they always have scruffy voices, though? Yes. Yes, they do. <laughs> Two of the witches were in his wife's Bible study, said Locke, who warned the alleged witches not to make a move during his sermon. He then retold the New Testament story of Jesus casting a demon out of a man and into a herd of pigs, turning it into an extended monologue about witches in the church. You so much as cough wrong, and I'll expose in front of everybody under this tent, you stinking spell-casting pharmakia, devil-worshipping, and mongrel, he said, using a Greek word that sometimes describes those who practice witchcraft or sorcery. Hemet Meta on Only Sky makes the point that this witch hunt is worse than it looks. Even if you think, as I do, he says, that Locke is just trying to arouse anger in his church members who need to be perpetually outraged to feel like they're getting their money's worth, this particular line of attack is more than just creating a boogeyman. Locke was essentially reminding church members that they must be obedient to him or else they're acting against God's wishes. This I smell a big fat cult in the brewing. Yes. Dissenters are controlled by Satan. Dissenters have a Jezebel spirit. Dissenters must be witches. It's not that Locke is going to expose witches. It's that he's creating an environment where anyone could be declared a witch. And if you don't want to become a target, the best path forward is to do anything and everything that Locke says, lest you become a target yourself. Satanic Panic Part 2, anyone? I'm just thinking Satanic Panic Cult. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have to wonder if three years from now we're going to be sitting here 
talking about the Greg Locke cult because there will be people stupid enough to follow him to the ends of the earth if yeah. he decides that you know he's going to be the head honcho of a new religion. Yeah. He'll probably always lend deference to his Christian foundations. I mean, Jim Jones did. Yeah. Um, David Koresh did. All the major cult leaders, um, well, most of them, not all, but most of them claimed to speak for God or a God right. or something along those lines. So I'm reading this, and not only am I thinking about what I said during our episode on the Salem Witch Trials, mm-hmm that it's been 300 years and we still haven't learned Jack Q shit. Yeah. But this is particularly scary. The way that he is framing this and Hemet Mehta's take on this, just reading it and seeing it laid out there in black and white, um, keep an eye on this guy. Yeah. Because it's a Bruin. It's It is a definitely a Bruin. It really all depends on how many people he can convince. Yeah. And if Azusa Street is any indication of how quickly that kind of hysteria can spread. It only takes a couple. Yeah. You know, I use the popcorn analogy. One person starts speaking in tongues, pop. Then six more, pop, 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 pop. And then a thousand more. You know, it just, it builds up like that. So all it will take is for him to have a small number of people that start looking at him like he's a messiah. And this egotistical fuck is going to start thinking of himself as a messiah in his head. And it's just going to snowball from there. I'd like to think I'm wrong, but all the signs are there. So let's keep a close eye on this asshole and see what he does over the next couple of years. And on that happy note... Um, our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. Any size donation is going to help us help other people get and stay unbound. And if that's something that you would like to help us do, then head on over there and make your pledge. Any amount of money is going to help us out. And we will be glad to take it and put it to good use to do more with this show, get some better equipment. My Mac's dying, people. <laughs> My Mac is dying. But it's still serving us pretty well for what we're doing here. That's not a shameless plug for someone to, I, I don't expect to, a new MacBook to show up on my doorstep, but you know, just for the sake of example, this is the type <laughs> of thing that we do with the money that we get and we could use more help. That's for sure. If you're not in the position to be able to give us money, then give us your likes, give us your shares, give us your five-star ratings, give us your good reviews. Tell someone new about the show this week, all the things that I say every single week. And you know what? You're doing it because our numbers are rising and new people are discovering us. And with now 101 and a half episodes to choose from, there's a lot here that someone who is on the fence about this religion can use to make some hard and fast decisions about it. And that's really why we're here. And there is ample content to be able to uh, to keep someone engaged for a long time at this point, well over 150 hours of content at this point. And that right there could change somebody's life. And all it will take is for you to just let them know that we're here and suggest an episode that you think might particularly resonate with them. So whether it's with money or whether it's with just these few things that we can do that only take a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes of our time, we can get the message out that this show is here and put the messaging in front of people that need to hear it because that really is my goal. I'm not trying to become a millionaire off of this. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to help some people get their lives back. And I do believe that we are uh, accomplishing that goal and will continue to with your help next week. Again, 
it's going to be a crazy week. I don't want to sacrifice quality. You know, I absolutely positively want to continue doing this. And, and I fully intend to. I'm not throwing in the towel anytime soon. But for right now, the plan is to take next week off and then march forward into March with our review of M. Night Shyamalan's The Village that's coming out on March 6th. And it will be worth the two-week wait. Absolutely. This movie is one of the most accidentally critical statements on religion that there is out there. And we're going to show you precisely why, point by point, scene by scene, with with all the, the same kind of commentary that we've done with the other movies. And we think you're really going to enjoy it. And again, we think that it will be well worth the wait. And with that, let's march headlong into this conversation about the plethora of actual factual contradictions that do actually and factually exist in the inerrant word of God. (laughs) So from the standpoint of logic, one must look at the examples we're going to cite tonight and see the flaws that exist in this so-called inerrant word of God. There are a lot of problems here, but like they do with everything that relates to their God, evangelicals are ready with their excuses for everything from his horrendous behavior to his abject stupidity on a broad range of topics, including science, definitely including science. So of course, they're ready with their explanations for how obvious biblical inconsistencies somehow work. So here's how Christians deal with biblical contradictions and inconsistencies. And I'm just going to use this one mouthpiece because he was the one that put out this article, and it's very short, so I'm kind of going to dissect it line by line. But this is an article from Josh.com, which is Josh McDowell's own website, and anyone who's been in evangelical Christianity for more than five minutes knows who Josh McDowell is. And I've heard heard all of this. I've heard all of this before. These were... Things that were told to me, and it was framed this way with me from the time I first got, quote unquote, saved. Mm. So I want to go through everything that he says about why there are no contradictions in the Bible and kind of explain where he's just flat out wrong. So here's what he has to say. If indeed the Bible does contain demonstrable errors, it would show that at least those parts could not have come from a perfect, all-knowing God. I totally, completely agree, Josh. We do not argue with this conclusion, but we do disagree with the initial premise that the scriptures are full of mistakes. It is very easy to accuse the Bible of inaccuracies because they're there. That's me, not him. But it is quite another matter to prove it. Okay, challenge accepted. (laughs) So it would appear that Josh has the same issue with the concept of proof that most Christians do. And that being that he has no fucking clue what it actually means. Right. So, Josh, I've got some proof for you. It's called the actual words that are in the Bible. But, yeah, that doesn't stop him from following through with this. He says certain passages at first glance appear to be contradictory, but further investigation will show that this is not the case. Oh, this ought to be good. One of the things, another quote, for which we appeal with regard to possible contradictions is fairness. We should not minimize or exaggerate the problem, and we must always begin by giving the author the benefit of the doubt. This is the rule in other literature, and we ask that it also be the rule here. We find so often that people want to employ a different set of rules when it comes to examining the Bible, and to this we immediately object. 
Okay, listeners, let's see if we all read the same thing here. Let's see if we all heard the same thing that I was reading. I'm zeroing in on the term other literature here. Did Josh McDowell just admit that the Bible is just a book? I'm sorry, Josh, but when you tout your holy book as being actually factually written by God, it says so in 2 Timothy 3.16, after all. You do not get to compare it to other literature. You don't get to make excuses for it by basically saying, yeah, it's God's word, but people wrote it. People are imperfect, therefore the book will be imperfect. Well, here's my question. And this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pose this question in different ways throughout this conversation. Why would a perfect God who wanted his messaging to get out there and be 100% true and clear to the hearer without the possibility of misinterpretation ever leave to chance that the person he chose to write it might get it right, but also might not, and either way, that's okay. Yeah. That makes absolutely no <laughs> sense. Next, he says, some fail to make a distinction between contradiction and difference. But but if two accounts say different things that cannot be sorted out by way of things like context and dialect, do they not, by definition, contradict each other? Let's look at an example from my childhood. Now, some people, when they're referring to pasta, they call it macaroni, and some just call it pasta. Well, macaroni is actually a type of pasta. Yes. But in my house growing up, macaroni was every kind of pasta. Hmm. You see, that's a difference. But those two things mean the same thing to a lot of people. My grandmother was one of them. Both terms in context and with deference to things like regional dialect can mean the same thing. So if I tell someone that I had macaroni for dinner, dinner? So if I tell someone that I had macaroni for dinner, but I tell someone else that I had pasta, both statements are true. If I was 12, I'd be saying macaroni. At 50, I say pasta. Yeah. Okay. But it means the same thing. But here's where it becomes a contradiction. If I tell someone I had pasta and then tell someone else that I had steak, that is a contradiction. And with all due respect, saying that God created light on day one in one verse and then saying that God created light on day four in another is not a difference. It's a contradiction. One and four are not synonymous. You cannot use the terms interchangeably even if you plead dialect. Josh McDowell then cites the case of the blind men, plural, at Jericho. Matthew relates how two blind men met Jesus, while both Mark and Luke mention only one. However, neither of these statements deny one another, but rather they are complementary. Oh, wait for it, people. Suppose you were talking to the mayor of your city and the and the chief, the church of police, <laughs> that would be very scary, and the chief of police at City Hall. Later, you see your friend Jim and tell him that you talked to the mayor today. An hour later, you see your friend John and tell him that you talked to both the mayor and the chief of police. When your friends compare notes, there's a seeming contradiction, but there is no contradiction. If you had told Jim that you talked only to the mayor, you would have contradicted that statement by what you told John. Dear Lord, where to begin? First off, one and two, again, not the same. And there's a very sneaky quality to the sentiment that just because you only mentioned the mayor to John, that didn't mean the chief of police wasn't there. It's just plain nonsense to say that just because Mark and Luke say there was one blind man doesn't mean there weren't more. There was, in fact, one, as well as another one. Here's where the argument falls completely apart. 
In one instance, you're talking about written reports of a single event that are framed as reporting of historical events that have different details in the who, what, where, and when. In the other, you're talking about a verbal conversation between two people. How do you equate a verbal conversation between two people with what is supposed to be an accurate written historical account? Maybe in each of the conversations, there were parts of the story that were either relevant or not. What if your friend Jim asked you directly if you talked to the mayor and you simply said yes? You didn't mention the chief of police because nobody asked about him. Now John generally asks how you spent your day and you mentioned both conversations. But if you were to write an accounting of your day, it would make no sense to omit a significant detail like the chief of police being part of it. The conversation with the chief of police is significant to that report. It might not have been in the context of a conversation where you were simply asked about the mayor. In any similar context, the writer would be held accountable for the facts. If a journalist for the New York Times said that five armed gunmen robbed a bank, but the New York Post and the New York Post would not be the one that got it right, <laughs> says that it was seven, the New York Times would look like a laughingstock by arguing, well, there was a total of seven, but if there were seven, certainly there were five. Josh McDowell again. Sometimes two passages appear to be contradictory because the translation is not as accurate as it could be. A knowledge of the original languages of the Bible can immediately solve these difficulties. For both Greek and Hebrew, as all languages, have their peculiarities that make them difficult to render into English or any other language. Okay, so a perfect God cannot produce a perfect message in any language? Why would any responsible deity not make absolutely certain that the messaging was correct? Did Josh McDowell just admit that his God has limitations on top of everything else? Did he just suggest that God can't illuminate his words to the people translating it so that more of the people he desires fellowship with would be able to know him perfectly? And again from the article, a classic example concerns the accounts of Paul's conversion as recorded in the book of Acts. Acts 9-7 states that the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. In Acts 22, it says, And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. These statements seem contradictory, with one saying that Paul's companions heard a voice, while the other accounts say that no voice was heard. However, a knowledge of Greek solves this difficulty, as the Greek scholar W.F. Arndt explains. The construction of the verb to hear, or akuo, is not the same in both accounts. In Acts 9-7, it is used with the genitive, in Acts 22-9 with the accusative. The construction with the genitive simply expresses that something is being heard or that certain sounds reach the ear. Nothing is indicated as to whether a person understands what he hears or not. The construction with the accusative, however, describes a hearing which includes mental apprehension of the message spoken. From this, it becomes evident that the two passages are not contradictory. Acts 22.9 does not deny that the associates of Paul heard certain sounds. It simply declares that they did not hear in such a way as to understand what was being said. Our English idiom in this case simply is not so expressive as the Greek. So, I guess I only have one question. Um, did the word understand exist when the KJV was written? I'm pretty sure it did, along with a few other equally clear synonyms. I'll play devil's advocate for a minute and say that I'll give Josh a point on that one. 
a little responsible exegesis can yield a conclusion like this, and that conclusion can be correct. But if a clearer, more concise way to convey this concept existed, why did the translators choose to use more ambiguous language that could be easily misinterpreted by the reader? And again, why would God even allow it? Don't useth heard in both statements. Useth thou understood or comprehended in this one. Thus saith the Lord. You know, I mean, <laughs> do you want it to be clear or not, God? This is your word. Do you want it to be clear or not? Back to the article. It must also be stressed that when a possible explanation is given to a Bible difficulty, it is unreasonable to state that the passage contains a demonstrable error. Some difficulties in scripture result from our inadequate knowledge about the circumstances and do not necessarily involve an error. These only prove that we are ignorant of the background. Um, for starters, I don't like being called ignorant of anything. If there's one thing that anyone who's known me for five minutes knows is that you can do a lot. You can mm. say a lot about me. You can insult me in many, many ways. But the instant you attack my intelligence... Mm. Watch the fuck out. <laughs> that's That's been me for as long as I've known me. Yeah. Okay? And here's the thing. Not everyone understands or can engage in exegesis, Josh. And when you're talking about people who only open their Bibles on Sunday in the first place, I'll say it again. If there's a way to clearly convey the message whose meaning is discovered through exegesis, then the translation should reflect an everyman quality that leaves no room for misunderstanding or misinterpretation. And since we're talking about ignorance, you know what I'm not ignorant of? I'm not ignorant of the background of numbers. One has always meant one. Two has always meant two. Two never means one because if there are two, certainly there is one. And yeah. if I'm ignorant to the background, what are the details that contextualize things in a way that makes them impossible to misinterpret? Again, for an all-powerful God, this Yahweh appears to have some serious limitations when it comes to the use of language. One more, uh, well, a couple more little jabs from the article. As historical and archaeological study proceed, new light is being shed on difficult portions of scripture and many errors have disappeared with the new understanding. Um, that statement is made in the article with zero context, explanation, or example. So all I can say there, Josh, is fucking prove it. Yeah. And this next part, I, I mean, I... This was almost a close the lid moment on the laptop for yeah. me. We need a wait and see attitude on some problems. Really? Okay. Well, in the meantime, your salvation and your eternity hang in the balance here. What else are we misinterpreting? What if what we understand about grace and the atonement are wrong because we're misinterpreting it? I guess we'll wait and see. And hopefully we don't all go to hell. And back to the article again. While all biblical difficulties and discrepancies have not yet been cleared up, it is our firm conviction that as more knowledge is gained of the Bible's past, these problems will fade away. The biblical conception of God is an all-knowing, all-powerful being who does not contradict himself, and so we feel, feel that his word, when properly understood, will not contradict itself. Sorry, Josh McDowell, but I need something better than feelings when it comes to what I'm going to believe. I don't care how you feel about it. Show me, show me how it's right. But here's the thing. Josh McDowell is far from alone. There's an article on Christianity.com that starts with this highly objective analysis. It says most of the alleged contradictions are made by atheists. 
All of the supposed contradictions are aimed at attacking the genuineness of the Bible and its divine nature. Well, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. That's precisely what we're doing. Not necessarily attacking, just shedding light on the fact that there is no genuineness to the Bible. No one's attacking anything. We're just trying to put the truth out there, which is more than we can say for the person who wrote this article. You know, speaking for atheists everywhere, don't blame us. We didn't write this drivel, and we aren't solely responsible for calling it out. Anyone with just average intelligence and enough time to do the research can see this plain as day the same way we do. These people accuse retractors of the Bible of taking verses out of context. Okay, but regardless of the context, either Judas hanged himself or he took the money, bought a potter's field, fell, died, and all his intestines burst out. The context here is how Judas handled the guilt of betraying Jesus. One account says he killed himself. Another says he bought a trash heap and had a slip and fall. Hashtag biblical forensics. There is no contextual issue surrounding the creation myth saying that light existed on day one, but the sun showed up on day four. I mean, they have all kinds of arguments, but they're largely pulled out of their asses. You know, the the whole notion that at the very beginning, the only light the world needed was the light of God. That's what they'll tell you, that God was light and he shined his light down on the planet and made life that was sustained by his light until he got around to making the sun. Why? Because he couldn't hang out around Earth for long enough for you know just to, to make sure that things kept living. I mean so so he needed this this big ball of gas to take <laughs> his place. I, that's I, I yeah. don't know. I don't know. But the writers of this article refer to harmonization as a means of tying various details together. This is where the explanation of what happened to Judas comes in. And it's still silly. They spotlight several contradictions in the Gospels and say this about them. As it is, the Gospel accounts are different because it gives us the overall true account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Each of the Gospels is a piece of the puzzle that, when all placed together, forms the entire picture of Jesus. I had a textbook called A Harmony of the Four Gospels. It It was a book that gave you all the synoptics with all of the events in order, plus Mm -hmm. John, and you could read what was, quote-unquote, the entire story. But the problem is that these were four stories written by four different people, and then some they have some very drastically different details in them. Yeah. So, you know, even if you put it on a timeline, there are things that crash into each other that you still can't just explain away. They try, but they can't. It's that simple. When I think about that statement, I wonder if any such thing would even fly in a court of law. Four accounts of the same story with sometimes wildly different details, a jury wouldn't be looking for the truth in all of them. That's not their job. They would be looking for the actual truth, if such could even be ascertained from the available testimony. If not, the verdict has to be not guilty or they declare a mistrial. If four people say that they saw the crime occur but give different descriptions of the perp, it's difficult, nearly impossible, to then harmonize the details and create an image of the defendant out of them. They even reference Josh McDowell using the same logic in a slightly different argument. This is his take on this again. Was there one angel at Jesus' tomb or two? Matthew and Mark say one. Luke and John say two. But if you're Josh McDowell, it's not a contradiction because only one spoke. So Matthew and Mark chose not to mention the other. 
again, maybe this would fly in a verbal conversation, but not really. But it certainly does not in the context of someone attempting to produce a factual historical record of something with significance to the salvation of all mankind. We're going to look now specifically at some, just some, yeah. of the contradictions that exist. And this list is so long. We could yeah. talk about this for a fucking month or oh, two yeah. or six, probably. Yeah. Just going through all of them without even analyzing them. We could yeah. do hours on this. Yeah, I know. But mm -mm. let's talk about some of the real glaring ones, starting with the creation myth. Because by the end of chapter two of Genesis, this whole thing is already unraveling. Yeah. So Genesis 127 says that man was created equal, both male and female. Genesis 2, 18 through 24 talks about how woman was created as a companion to the man only after he rejected the animals for companionship. Right. Basically, Adam needed some place to put his dick and God said, we'll put it here. That's the account in Genesis chapter two. Um, Genesis one says that man was created after the plants. Genesis two says that man was created before the plants. Genesis 1, 12 and 26 and Genesis two, five through nine, respectively. Genesis 1.20 says the birds were created out of the water. Genesis 2.19 says that the birds were created out of the land. In Genesis 1, 24 through 26, the animals were created before man. In Genesis 2.19, the animals were created after man. In Genesis 1, 3 through 5, on the first day, God created and separated light and darkness. In Genesis 1, same fucking chapter. In Genesis 1, 14 through 18, it says on the fourth day, God created and separated light from darkness, or basically that he created the sun at right. that point. This is all significant because this is supposed to be the all authoritative word of God, and it's supposed to explain where we came from. And yet it doesn't seem interested in hiding the inconsistencies in the narrative. And there are plenty of evangelicals out there with all kinds of explanations for all the disparities, and exactly none of them make sense. Yeah. Certainly not from the standpoint of science. Yeah. Let's forget the contradiction aspect of it. There's no sound science in any of this. And I found this one interesting, one where the contradictions flow like water and they all stem from one verse, Exodus 20, 13. It says, thou shalt not kill. And let's bear in mind that this is all it says. It doesn't say thou shalt not kill unless the Lord says to. It simply says, don't do it. And then throughout the Old Testament, there are instances where God tells people to kill other people. Here are just a few of the examples where after saying thou shalt not kill, God comes back and says, okay, you can kill these people. In Leviticus 20, uh, we're killing adulterers. In Exodus 22, we're killing witches. In Leviticus 24, we're killing blasphemers. In Zechariah 13, we're killing false prophets. In Leviticus 20, it's fortune tellers. Ezekiel 18, anyone who sins. That's, that's kind of subjective. That's broad. In 1 Samuel 6, it's kill the curious. That's an interesting one. In Leviticus 20, we're killing the gays. In Deuteronomy 20, we're killing anyone who's not a Hebrew. In Isaiah 14, kill the sons of sinners. Just kill the sinners and then go after their sons. In 2 Chronicles, we're killing non-believers. In Leviticus, we're killing anyone who curses God. In Exodus 21, we, we're killing any child who hits a parent. In Deuteronomy 21, we're killing children who disobey their parents. 
In Exodus 31, we're killing those who work on the Sabbath. In Numbers 1, we are killing strangers close to a church. In Deuteronomy 20, we're killing all males after winning battles. Then in Leviticus 20, we're killing those who curse father or mother. In Leviticus 20, we're killing men who have sex with other men, again, going after the gays. Deuteronomy 22, we're killing any bride discovered to not be a virgin, which uh, we've talked about this one in detail also. Numbers 25, kill those who worship the wrong God. In Exodus 31, kill anyone who does not observe the Sabbath. In Deuteronomy 13, we're killing everybody in a town that worships the wrong God. And then finally, to bring it full circle, Leviticus 24, we're killing anyone who kills anyone. That's a lot. That's a lot of killing. That's a lot right there. Mm -hmm. Just for spite, I also found an awesome list of contradictions on atheist.org. Now, I'll cover the obvious problem that any Christian will bring up with a lot of these since they contrast things stated between the Testaments. Many Christians will argue that this stuff happened before the atonement and the atonement changed everything. To that, all I can say is this, quote, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That's your so-called savior in Matthew 5, 17. So sorry, but any New Testament cancels out Old Testament arguments simply do not fly. Unless you actually want to I don't know, contradict your savior. So I kind of found this a little bit snarktastic, but it makes a point. And I'm not going to go through all of these, but again, they make the point. Speaking on the Sabbath, Exodus 20 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Romans 14 says, one man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. So Exodus says, keep the Sabbath. Paul says, do it if you feel like it, but that it's not necessary. There's a necessary aspect to pretty much everything in the, in the Ten Commandments. It was necessary to obey the commandments. And Paul says, yeah, you can just blow that one off. The permanence of earth, Ecclesiastes 1.4 says, the earth abideth forever. But 2 Peter 3.10 says, the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Kind of a stark contrast. Yeah. Talking about seeing God, Genesis 32, 30 says, I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. In John 1, 18, it says, no man hath seen God at any time. On the subject of the power of God, this one, you know, I went through four years of Bible college and went through a lot of years in evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, even though I read the Bible through twice, going through Bible college, because that's what winds up happening. Right. You wind up reading a lot of the same stuff at least twice. And one of the things that I was told before I went to Bible college was that in four years, you would go through most of the Bible twice. I went through all of that and years and years as an evangelical. And this verse never stood out to me. Right. In Matthew 19, it says, with God, all things are possible. That's not the one I'm talking about. This is the one I'm talking about in Judges 1.19. It says, the Lord was with Judah and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. So hold up. Hmm. God has kryptonite. <laughs> 
Because the chariots were made of iron, he could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley. So is this God all-powerful or isn't he? But it just goes to prove another big contradiction in the Bible. It doesn't come right out and say that God isn't all-powerful. But in the context of that statement, that sure as fuck is what it's saying. Okay? On the subject of personal injury, thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, and wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. That's Exodus 21, 23 through 25. Matthew 5, 39 says, you resist not evil, but whoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Again, a pretty stark contrast. Well, that's Old Testament versus new. Um, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. You can't get past that. Circumcision. That's a fun topic. Genesis 17.10. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. Hop over to Galatians 5.2 and you read, if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Hmm. Okay. Incest. Another fun topic. Cursed be he that lieth with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 27, 22. And if a man shall take his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, it is a wicked thing. That's in Leviticus 20, 17. But what was God's reaction to Abraham who married his sister, his father's daughter? She was his half-sister, but right. she was still blood. She was still a half-sibling. Right. And, and we learned this in Genesis 20, 11, and 12. In Genesis 17, 15, and 16, God says to Abraham, as for Sarah, thy wife, I bless her and give thee a son also of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's. I'm sorry. You can plead dialect. You can plead original language. You can plead anything that you want. Those words are black and white. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how you try to frame them. Sarah doesn't stop being his half-sister, even through the course of exegesis. It doesn't stop happening. And all of those other verses decry this very thing that God blesses in this passage. Talking about trusting God, Proverbs 12, 2 says, A good man obtaineth favor of the Lord. And then the, the writer of the article here says, Now consider the case of Job. After commissioning Satan to ruin Job financially and to slaughter his shepherds and children to win a petty bet with Satan. God asks Satan, hast thou considered my servant Job that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest against him to destroy him without cause. That's Job 2.3. So a good man obtaineth the favor of the Lord, but then God can basically throw you to the devil when he feels like it, regardless of what kind of person you are. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, according to Ezekiel 18, 20. But in Exodus 20, 20, verse 5, it says, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Try and exegete your way out of that one. <laughs> On the subject of temptation, James 1, 13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth. That's a hard one. Neither tempteth he any man. But, but way, way back in Genesis 22, 1, it says, And it came to pass after these things 
that God did tempt Abraham. Oh, it just keeps going and going, going and going, going like the Energizer fucking money. <laughs> um, on the subject of family relationships, Exodus 20, verse 12 says in, again, the Ten Commandments, honor thy father and thy mother. In Luke 14, Jesus says, if any man comes to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Why would you want someone following you around who fucking hates himself? That, 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 that has never made any sense. Even when you open up the pages of The Hard Sayings of Jesus by F.F. F. Bruce, it still makes no sense. Yeah. And let me tell you, I liked F.F. F. Bruce back yeah. in the day quite yeah. a bit. I remember that. But uh, yeah, he applies a lot of the same level of logic to all of these things that Josh McDowell applies to the subject of biblical contradictions. Talking about the resurrection of the dead, Job 7, 9 says, He that goeth down to the grave shall come up no more. I agree. But John 5, 28 and 29 says, The hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Speaking of the end times, Matthew 16, 28 says, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Not so much a contradiction as just either an out-and-out -out lie or, <laughs> yeah. the rant, or the rantings of a crazy person. These are just a few of the examples that exist out there. But just to make the point all the clearer, guess what? I got a few more from another source called thoughtcatalog.com. I'm just going to draw a few of them out just for the sake of emphasis here. Let's see. The book of Revelation, which, you know, it's, it's kind of an important book. Yeah. In terms of, you know, anything related to the end times. And a lot of doctrine is born out of the information that's in Revelation. But just, you know, one chapter apart, we find these two passages. In Revelation 8, 7, it says, The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. And they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. That's Revelation 8, 7. Um, bookmark all the green grass was burnt up. In Revelation 9, 4, it says, among other things, they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing. Just one chapter away. In Proverbs 12, 22, it says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. That's Proverbs 12, 22. In 1 Kings 12, 22, 23, it says, The Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee. In 2 Kings 25, 8, it says, And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, Nebuzaradan came unto Jerusalem. But in Jeremiah 52, 12, again, giving an historical accounting of an event, says in the fifth month, in the tenth day of the month, is when he came into Jerusalem. Uh. Oh, here's one of my favorite ones. Um, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works. But then in James 2, 24, it says, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. And when you look at those two verses together, you see the very first thing that I thought of was my experience at Word of Life. Mm. Let's not forget that the whole grace versus works argument is not settled in, in the New Testament. And here's the proof that we need right there. 
Ephesians 2 says that we're saved by grace and not of ourselves, not by works so that no man can boast. Then James 2 turns around and says that a man is justified by works and that faith without works is dead. So when they told me at Word of Life that saying a prayer was enough to be saved and then told me I had to go to the altar, what did they do there? Well, they acknowledged that this discrepancy exists in scripture and tried to make it all work together. But after all that, after me being told that I had to perform an act of getting out of my seat and going down to that altar, which is works, not grace, they then chose for the rest of the week to drive the once saved, always saved argument with fervor. And they kept this messaging in my head for years. Word of Life Bible Institute students are actually trained to deal with this whole you can lose your salvation thing because it's a hot button issue in a lot of evangelical denominations. The notion that you can backslide and lose your salvation is definitely AG doctrine. And uh, I can remember having a conversation with a couple of Wolby, that's Word of Life Bible Institute students, when I was at snow camp one year. And this one guy, he was very devout and he was very sincere. He was a nice guy. He was a smart guy. And he sat me down for well over half an hour showing me scripture after scripture after scripture that is supposed to point to the fact that I can't lose my salvation. And he kind of had me convinced until I went back to my AG church and got my head screwed back on, quote unquote, straight when it came to the fact that I could lose my salvation, so you better watch out. But he spun a convincing argument. I will definitely give him that. And he argued it very eloquently. But it just goes to show that they will always take the parts that they agree with and run with them and compile them and assault you with them. Mm. But the parts that they disagree with, then they aren't even going to mention. You know, I don't recall hearing anything about the book of James in that conversation because that kind of throws a wrench right into the entire argument. Oh yeah, last week last week I said this was Malachi 4. It's actually Malachi 3.6, for I am the Lord, I change not. But in Exodus 32.14, it says, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. And there's also a part where there's right before the flood, where he basically says that he made a mistake making people. You know, but he's gonna let some of them survive anyway. Here contradiction on top of contradiction. In Psalm 145.9, it says the Lord is good to all. But in Exodus 20, verse 5, it says, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third, unto the third and fourth generation. Oh, this is a good one. The same chapter of the same book. In Galatians 6, in one instance, it says, Every man shall bear his own burden. But then in the same damn chapter, bear ye one another's burdens. So which is it? In 1 Peter 2.13, it says, submit yourself to every ordinance of man. But in Acts 5.29, it says we ought to obey God rather than men. Oh, here's another good one. Genesis 9.3, everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Romans 14.21, it is better not to eat meat. <laughs> and, and it goes on from there. Um, And also, I could add to that the dietary rules, the kosher dietary rules that are still followed to this day. Um, I don't read that in Genesis 9-3. In Genesis 9-3, I read that I can eat anything that lives and moves about. Right. Pigs live and move about. Shellfish, they live and they do in their own way move about. Mm -hmm. Um, 
when we used to go to the uh, the aquarium up in yeah. Maine, and they had the scallops in the tank. The scallops, I love and them. they would take the starfish and put the starfish next to the scallop. These things are natural enemies. That scallop would move away from it. Yeah. Okay. It moves. Pretty I can fast. eat it. It moves. I can eat it. Yeah. So there's that, but not according to Mosaic law. I can't. In Proverbs, again, same chapter. In Proverbs 26, it says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. And then turns around and says, in the very next verse, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Which is, that, that's two verses apart. That's, that's, uh, two ver- that's one verse apart. It's two verses right next to each other. Okay? One verse apart and you get a direct contradiction of what the words are saying. I mentioned the one about Judas earlier, so yeah. I'm, I'm going to kind of leave that there, but here are the references. In Matthew 27, 5, he's throwing the pieces of silver at the feet of the uh, of the priests and holy men who convinced him to rat out Jesus. And in Acts 1, 18, he is buying a field with the reward of iniquity and falling headlong where he burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out. I am going to stop on this for just a second, only because this is one of those examples where, and, and this it actually makes sense in the context of this episode. I kind of went off on a tangent on an earlier one and just cut the whole thing out. So I'm going to just spend a couple minutes on this now because it's actually contextual. When I was in college, I can remember one of our professors tackling this one. And here's what he had to say about those two verses. Mm. So they're both true. Why? Because Judas did, in fact, cast the pieces of silver at the feet of the of the priests. But the priests then took the money and purchased a potter's field in his name. Ah, yeah. And at some point, I guess, the, and this is the this is where it kind of starts to fall apart, is that this potter's field was purchased in Judas's name, and yet somehow he managed to go there, slip and fall, and his intestines burst out. So it's incredibly thin and incredibly nonsensical. <laughs> but this is all they have to come back with when somebody says, well, that's a direct contradiction. And it is. It is a direct contradiction. But they had to add that little part about, well, he may not have taken the money and purchased it. But as far as those people were concerned, that was his money. So it was purchased in his name. Okay, that's great. But why the hell did he even go there? That makes no sense. Or did they find him there and purchase that? You you can go off on so many tangents with this. So I'm just going to kind of leave it right there. In Matthew 26, 52, Jesus says, put up again thy sword into its place for all they that take a sword shall perish with the sword. But in Luke 22, 36, he also says, he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. And this just goes on and on and on and on. But I think I'm going to leave the examples where they are. You've got a couple. I like the the um, the question and answer yeah, format with because... these. So I'm going to have you go through the ones that you came up with. Sure. I'm using the um, contradiction chart, the one with all the red lines. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Did you? Oh, yeah. You've got it right there. So you'll be able to see what we're talking about if you look at the show notes. Right. Yeah. It it really is kind of amazing. Just the sheer number of contradictions that they are. Someone charted it all out and it is just, it's elegant chaos. Yeah. It's super, super organized, too. Um, 
they're color coded by like different things like science facts that they get wrong and all sorts of things like that. It's at lyingforjesus.org. That's yeah. a great website. Oh, yeah, I name. like that. I like that. But yes, they have them as phrased as questions. How should strangers be treated? Be kind to them or kill them? Be kind to them. There's a lot of verses. Generally, most of them say, Thou shalt neither vex a stranger nor oppress him, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. That's Exodus twenty-two twenty-one. And a lot of them are like that. God is reminding them that they were strangers in the land of Egypt. But then you get to kill them. Numbers 151. And when the tabernacle setteth forward, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. Because... I don't know. I guess they just don't want you looking. Well, because it's the same kind of bigotry that fuels a lot of things in modern society yeah. that you can find in the Bible. The Bible's loaded with examples of bigotry. Yeah. And, I mean, the, the KKK learned it from somewhere. Yeah. This is where. Then, you know, most Catholics would never get as far as reading that far into, like, the Book of Numbers. But Protestants read the whole thing. Right. And, and they glean all kinds of stuff, whether they realize it. Or not, whether it's active or passive, they're gleaning a lot from verses like this. Mm-hmm. What else have you got? Uh, another question: Can women be church leaders? Yes or no? Yes. Romans sixteen one. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Sancria. Or no. One Corinthians fourteen thirty four and thirty five. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. And then also in 1 Timothy two eleven to 12 Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Yeah, Paul had some... Paul had some issues with had, women. Yeah, he, he was the definition of a misogynist. He really was. Yeah, this is the best one. If the man is saved, will his wife be saved also? In 1 Corinthians 7.14, the answer is yes, his whole family is saved by his belief. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. Also in Acts 16.31, And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Or, who knows? 1 Corinthians 7.16 For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? And, you know, you could go on with this all night. Yes. And while even I looked at some of the examples that are out there and said, yeah, that's a reach. There are plenty of contradictions out there that are absolutely 100% legit. One verse says X, one says Y. 
And you can't defend it by saying, well, if there were two angels, there was one, so both are true and correct. If there were two, certainly there was one. No, it doesn't work that way. Semantical arguments don't work when you're supposed to bank your life and your eternity on the message of a book. It's that simple. It has to be right. It has to be clear. It has to be inerrant if you're going to call it inerrant. And you can't just decide that these things are inerrant when they clearly contradict each other. And it doesn't matter what the original languages are. It doesn't matter what dialectical differences might go into the way that things are said. The wording, the choice of wording by by the translators is irrelevant because if they got it wrong, then God should have made sure they got it right. Yeah, It's that simple. So my question then is this. If there are so many inconsistencies in the Bible, how are we supposed to know what to believe? But there can't be only one blind man and two blind men at the same time. There's no harmony there. If X equals one and Y equals two, X does not equal Y, period. So in conclusion, to tie all of this together, I submit to you 2 Peter 1.21, where it says that for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It's right there in the book. If the Bible is truly the word of God, you would think that a God who created everything understands the intricacies of the universe and life itself would have a very, very organized mind and would understand the intricacies of all of the languages that he created. So here's my question. Why, when dictating his word to the humans who were supposedly literally under the influence of the Holy Spirit, did he allow so many details to get so fundamentally skewed? Again, either Jehoiakim was eight or he was 18 when he reigned in Jerusalem. He couldn't have been both. Does the Holy Spirit have a bad memory or something? Mm. And no matter what Josh McDowell wants us to think, the Bible is fraught with contradictions. You can twist words, apply your own meaning, argue from the standpoint of semantics, and convince yourself that you don't see what you see in the so-called Word of God. But when you do any of that, you sacrifice the single most important thing there is in matters of belief. And that thing is the truth. It all goes back to believing the better story. Do you like the idea of Judas returning the blood money and hanging himself? Or do you prefer him literally exploding in a junkyard? You can decide to believe one over the other, but not even with slick speculations that are rooted in nothing but opinion can you decide to believe both. As a Christian, you also need to decide whether or not your eternity is based on a promise, based on a prayer that you pray, or the effort you make to earn and keep your salvation. And you'll never get a straight answer on this one from the Bible. So you have to choose your better story and run with it. Let me tell you what the better story is in this instance. It involves throwing out the entire Bible and applying logic to all the things you've been told you have to believe. It involves accepting that there's no clear messaging about anything in the Bible and that its own words out it as hopelessly errant and subsequently not worthy of being taken seriously. If God is perfect, his word should be too. It should be clear concise, and consistent throughout. The Bible is anything but. Stop putting your faith in a book that can't make up its mind about basically anything, or the God who is supposedly behind it who demonstrates over and over and over again that he's batshit out of his. See this book for what it is. 
reject its messaging, stop making excuses for the lies it tells and the errors it contains, and start getting unbound. hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.